Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come before you and as we um, anticipate to hear from you, I pray that you would help us to see your son in all his glory so that we may behold him, so that we may understand a little bit better the person and the work and so that that would be the motivation for us then to live a life that you desire, a life that you redeemed us for. As we reflect on our perfect high priest, we pray may we draw with confidence to the throne of grace and continue to draw near because there's promise for us to receive grace and to receive mercy when we need it, and we need it all the time. Help us, Father, I pray. We ask in the name of your son, amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Praise the Lord. It certainly feels like winter. A uh, bit frigid here. Almost want to call everyone to stand up and do a little bit of uh, Father Abraham uh, to, to warm up a bit, but we're not going to do that. So uh, great time, great time. This is the official celebration of, uh, of Christmas here for us. We will be moving on uh, to a couple of special sermons coming up uh, next Sunday and then our New Year's Sunday on January 9th. As you heard, January uh, or January 2nd and then January, January 9th, we will be celebrating our uh, third anniversary. It's hard to believe that uh, Grace Hill Church is almost three years old and we'll have um, a local pastor that will come here, Rod Santiago from Roseville, uh, Grace Bible Church in Roseville. So we're excited about that uh, just to partner up with local ministries here. And so I hope you're looking forward to that. Be praying uh, for that Sunday. But uh, this morning, uh, we will continue and in fact finish our little three-week series from the book of Hebrews. A couple of weeks ago, we started uh, the series in Hebrews and uh, just to set the tone, set the tone for this Christmas season. And so far, we've looked at the person and work of Jesus Christ, both as God from Hebrews chapter one and then as man, as human, perfect son and then perfect human in Hebrews chapter two. And so as we continue in this study, I invite you to turn with me now to Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five, as we look at the perfect mediator. You know, um, as you turn there, some of you might be thinking here this morning um, and wondering why would we get into another you know, quote unquote, intellectual study as we delve into the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Um, why not just, you know, talk about Christmas and, and other happy and jolly themes, right? I think it's important for us to understand that as we, especially in this season, as we reflect on the true meaning, the biblical meaning of Christmas, it always leads us to a reflection on the person and work of Jesus Christ, always. In other words, there is no celebration, there is no Christmas without us considering the real reason for what we call the season, right? Jesus Christ. But more than that, you know, 
the New Testament perspective is always this, that truths about Jesus are the greatest motivations to Christian obedience. As we reflect more on the person and the work of Jesus, then they motivate us to obey and love Jesus and serve one another all the more. It's not the other way around. It's what our reflection on what's been given, it's on our reflection on the gospel that motivates us and that is really the greatest source of comfort and assurance in our Christian walk with the Lord. And so that's why Sunday after Sunday, we come here because we are unfaithful, right? We come here in order to hear of the faithful one. We come here because we're battered and wounded and broken, and we need to hear of the one who isn't and in whom we are made complete, and that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're looking at Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest, You know, priests were very crucial for the life and fellowship of the Old Testament believers. They represented men before God, and they represented God to men. And so they were what we call here, we have the perfect mediator. They were mediators. A mediator is one who comes between two parties, okay, who are at odds. They are estranged from one another, and he comes to reconcile them together. So you have this party who is angry with this party and you have this party who is angry with that and the mediator comes in and is like, hey, we need to get together to reconcile, to remedy this situation and that's what the priest did. He brought peace. They, they functioned, th- th- that's really what their function was in the Old Testament and of course the most impressive figure in the Old Testament worship was the high priest, was the high priest. Um, his just gorgeous garments alone would set him aside. You knew who this man was just by looking at him. And so when you read the Old Testament description of everything that he wore, you look and you notice this man is special. This man is clean. This man has a perfect job. He comes in and he represents God. And we need this man in order to be in the right standing with God. But also he had a very important job once a year, especially on the day of atonement, it was his privilege. It was his privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies and to stand before God. And friends, as he stood there in the Holy of Holies before God, as the representative of the people, the whole nation, he stood representing everybody, the good, the bad, the defiled, the wretched, the miserable, The honorable, the holy, the pure, all of them, the great and the small, everybody, this priest, the whole nation relied on this one man to bring him into the presence of God. And the great significance of his standing in that place was this, that man, however they were, right, in all of their brokenness and wretchedness and misery and poverty and sin and all of their lack and all of their want, they had access to God. That's what the priest offered, access to God. As we begin to look at Hebrews, the the theme of Christ's priesthood is first mentioned in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. And I want you on our way to Hebrews five, just look at that verse with me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, referring to Jesus Christ in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
Jesus Christ is both merciful and he is faithful. And then he continues that theme in chapter three and he says in verse one, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, think of him, ponder on on Christ, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. In other words, we have a different confession than the confession that the Old Testament folks had. And our priest is Christ, as opposed to the Old Testament priest, and we'll talk about that difference. Now, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 14, the author here, he exhorts us to hold fast and to draw near to God with confidence because Jesus passed through the heavens And he says, brought real fellowship. In other words, we're not called to enter into another temple. We're not called to get into another tabernacle, bring our own sacrifices. No, Jesus Christ entered the heaven and we now have direct access to the Father because of our great high priest. Therefore, when you pray, therefore, when you approach God, you have full confidence. Don't shrink back is what he is calling them to do. And then look at verse five or uh, chapter five, verse one, four, this word four further explains what he just stated in verses 14 through 17 of chapter four or through 16 rather. He's going to further explain. He's going to elaborate. He's going to give us three reasons why we need to have confidence and why we need to draw near the throne of grace. And they are primarily rooted in who Jesus is and what he has done. And I want you to, again, notice that Christ's person and his work are used all over the Hebrews, right, as motivations for us in the Christian life. And so as we begin, I want you to follow along with me in chapter 4, verse 14. We'll start there and we'll read through verse 10 of chapter 5. The author writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people and also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 
being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So here is basically the bottom line. The big idea here in verses in chapter four all the way through chapter five is this. We have confidence in God's mercy and grace because of Christ so draw near. That's what he says. This is what we need to walk away with after we read this. Friend, sinner, the one who is broken, the one who's defiled, the one who doesn't have it all together, you have confidence. How can I have confidence before a holy God? Well, it's because of your high priest. Therefore, draw near. Go, pray, plead. God will hear and God will answer. And so three reasons why we need to be confident. Number one, be confident in God's mercy because you have a sympathetic mediator. Sympathetic. That's number one. Number two, be confident in God's mercy because you have an everlasting, you have eternal mediator. And number three, be confident in God's mercy because you have a perfect mediator. Number one, sympathetic, sympathetic mediator. As the writer here unpacks the reasons why we need to confidently approach the throne of grace, he begins with first the reflections on the Old Testament priesthood. He says in, in verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence so that we may receive mercy and then he jumps in. Remember the chapter breaks and the, and the verse breaks and all of that. Sometimes they throw us off completely. We think this is it. Like what he said in verse 16, that's it. We're done with our reading for the day. Close it, leave the Bible, we'll pick up tomorrow. That's not the way it's supposed to be read. It's supposed to be read all the way through. And so as we read all the way through, he says, go, draw near. Four, let me explain why. And he gives us reasons. Four, right? He wants to answer very specific question. What was the Old Testament priest for? And based on that, he's gonna then describe Christ's priesthood. What were they for? Now, he wrote to Hebrews, right? And so no doubt the reader knew the reasons why there was a need for the priest. But in verses one through four, he reflects on the priest and then applies these truths to Jesus Christ. So two qualifications, two qualifications in, in verses one through four. The first qualification for a priest, Old Testament priest, that they were they became priests by appointment only, by appointment only. In other words, look at verse one, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed. He is appointed. It's passive. It's not something that he does on his own. He is appointed. Verse four says that no man could take this honor upon himself without God's appointment, without God saying, you will be the priest. Only God could decide who would fulfill this office. And it was very important. Only those who were called, like verse 4, like Aaron, could occupy the office of a high priest. Why is this important? Why is he bringing this up right now? Well, if men appointed their own high priest, they would do so in their own manner. Right? I don't like this guy. This guy is going to be my priest. This guy is going to be my representative. They would do it in their own manner, according to their own likings, in attempt to appease and please God. But would that even be possible? No, you can't. Humans cannot approach God by their own methods, bring in their own mediators. No, God says, I will appoint my men. He's gonna go through 
rituals that no other man has to go through in cleaning himself and putting on the proper attire so that I can accept him. It's very, very important in the Old Testament. And same thing applies to Jesus Christ. The fact that the high priest was ordained by God, selected by God, it means that God, God, friends, God opened the way for men to find access to him. God says, you know what, sinners, I am going to find a way to still fellowship with you. This was an act of mercy. In setting up an Old Testament prophet, God was showing mercy to sinners who had absolutely no claim of coming close to God. God wished that man would draw near to him. And so God had provided very specific way so that he could speak to them face to face. What was he appointed for? Look at verse one. To offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. To offer. Think about what what this appointment of prophets, it assumed, right? Men are sinners in need of atonement. Every time you saw a priest, you were reminded that that priest is there because of my terrible heart. I need that man to come before the Lord because I am a sinner. Every time you saw a priest, that that should have been your conclusion. If men are not sinners, if they're not separated from the holy God, there is no need for a mediator. There is no need for a man to come in and to what? Bring peace. But you also couldn't just walk up to the altar, enter the holy place or the holy of holies and bring your own sacrifice and says, well, here, you know, and say, here I am, Lord, accept me as I am. You couldn't do that. You would die. You needed God's means to appease the wrath. So the function of the high priest was to represent us before God by making these gifts and sin offerings. They're they're probably a reference to just a general description of all of the designated offerings in the Old Testament. The entire Jewish sacrificial system, but especially the Day of Atonement, emphasized the problem of human sinfulness in the presence of the Holy God. Without the appropriate sacrifice, sinners could not approach nor even be reconciled to God. So notice what the author here is doing. First, he brings the example of the Old Testament prophet, and he says, here's here's who they were, but let me tell you something about Jesus Christ. He highlights these qualifications and then applies them to Jesus Christ, and he says, just like the Old Testament priests were appointed by God, so was Jesus Christ. Verse five, if you look at it, Hebrews chapter five, Verse five, so also Christ. And he will go on to build a case that just like they were, so was Christ, but all the more, all the more. He was appointed by God. The gifts and sacrifices of the Old Testament ultimately pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the perfect and final sacrifice. So the first qualification was they had to be appointed. You can wake up one day and say, you know what? I feel like I'm gonna change my careers The other one's not going so well. I'm going to become a priest. Couldn't do that. God had to do it. Number two, the second qualification in verses one through three is that the Old Testament priest had to be a man. Had to be 
a man, in order to function as a high priest and represent man before God, it was necessary that the person would be person, that he would be fully human. Why? Because, as the text says, it is important that someone who represented man would be compassionate and sympathetic high priest. Look at this. He is taken from among men, verse 1, and since he is a man, he can deal gently with ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Look, the Jewish high priest, friends, they, they could understand the problem of sinners because they were sinners themselves. Before they could go in to the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of other people, the text says that they had to atone for themselves. Look at verse three. Sacrifices for the sins, as for the people, so also for himself. The priest understood that if I just come in quickly and if I get all the sacrifices for my people and offer it without first me receiving cleansing and forgiveness, I'm a dead man. So they knew when they were interceding on behalf of Tim, they knew that, man, I need to be gentle with this guy because I deal with exactly the same sins and weaknesses as, as he is. The Greek term here, deal gently, look at verse two, he can deal gently. It means to take the middle course between being apathetic and angry. So what does that mean? The priest, think about this, he was not to be indifferent to the sins of the fallen men. And yet, at the very same time, he couldn't be harsh with repentant sinners. He had to treat and, and offer up and receive sacrifices because a man sinned. So he can't just say, oh, don't worry about it, man. Yeah, sin, uh, who cares about sin? Who defines what sin is? No, he couldn't do that. He couldn't be indifferent. No, you sinned, therefore the word of God says you gotta bring the sacrifice. But at the same time, he couldn't be harsh and he says, what are you doing? No one's gonna ever accept your sacrifices. He couldn't be harsh as to elevate himself over the people and say, no, now I'm holy, but you guys are just a bunch of trash who don't know how to worship the Lord. He couldn't assume that position either. He had to deal gently with people. He was aware of his own sins and weaknesses. He was falling just like the rest. He was weak when dealing with his own sin. He knows that, you know, I just sinned the other minute, the other day, and that's why I need a sacrifice before the Lord. You know what this is like, right? When if someone, you know, knows the struggle that you are going through, someone who has gone through the same struggle and has come out on the other side, still trusting the Lord, obeying the Lord, loving the Lord. That person can be more gentle and more sympathetic to your need. Isn't that always true? You can relate to a person who is struggling and you're like, you know, I've been there. I've gone through that family issue. I've gone through that work issue. I've, I can relate to you. And this was God's plan for, for a regular priest to relate, to be sympathetic so that they can encourage you. I mean, even in the world, this is practiced all the time. 
Think about companies, you know, like you have a startup, for instance, and then uh, the, the founder of the company, after so many years, he's like, you know, I got to move on and I have the company kind of outgrew me. Now I got to set another person in my place. Maybe he wants to go start another company or something. Who do they find usually to replace him, to replace this CEO? Usually the guy who started out with him, who knows basically the insides of the business from A to Z. Someone who started out at the bottom, maybe in the garage, right? Who, who worked actually with his hands, not just behind, you know, um, somewhere in, in a, you know, high rise, who has no idea what it's like to be a bottom level worker in his company. Why? Because he will understand this CEO, when he is implementing certain and making certain decisions, he will know what it's like to be the bottom level worker and he will be a much better CEO than someone who's never done this before, someone who is just management only. That's very important for companies. Why? You have to be able to relate to everybody in the company for the company to do well. And I think in some sense, this is exactly what is pictured here. There has to be a relation. They, there, there has to be a certain sympathy to sinners. Well, think about this. How then is Jesus like the Old Testament priest? If it was necessary for the Old Testament high priest to be a man, the son of God had to become fully man. Listen, the, the fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and took on human flesh, it was not an accident in God's plan. It is essential for God's plan that the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, would take on humanity so that this one who is both God and man would become this mediator. But here's the issue. How can Jesus understand our weakness? How can he understand our weakness when, when he's not a sinner? We, we know he's not a sinner. He is without sin, verse 15 of chapter four says, and many other passages in Hebrews went on to emphasize his sinlessness. How can he relate to sinners? How can he sympathize with our weaknesses? And, and look, the author says that this one sympathizes with us even better than the Old Testament prophet, or the Old Testament priest, rather. He is better, how? Well, verses seven and eight, look at verses seven and eight in Hebrews chapter five, they, they give us an answer. Jesus understands our suffering and our weakness because he has endured suffering. He understands because he's gone through it all. Verse seven, verse seven here, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety here. And most likely, the days of his flesh, so focusing on the entire earthly ministry, but this phrase offered up both prayers and, and supplication. They most likely refer to the events that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross where he was crying out, when he was praying, where he was sweating literal blood. And on the cross, he was crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? As he's wrestling with the prospect of drinking the cup 
of God's wrath against our sins, he offered up prayers, it says, and supplications. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, we read that the high priest was to take one of the goats, you know, the scapegoat, and he was to bring, and he was to put his hands on the scapegoat, and he was to confess over the head of the scapegoat, quote, all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins. He was to pray, he was to confess. So the prayers and petitions that are referred to here to Jesus Christ as the high priest, they do not only refer to the prayers that Jesus offered, but also to the very offering up of himself as a sacrifice. It is like the scapegoat whose sins, right, or, or um, all of humanity's sins, those who would be redeemed, those who would be called into the kingdom, their sins were placed on Jesus Christ, and he is offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying with tears. I don't know if you've ever read this, this uh, verse here and then went back to Gospels and tried to find, like, where is this at? I, I don't know, no Gospel writer actually gives you this or uses this language. Maybe, maybe it was reported to whoever wrote this letter by one of the apostles who was there in the garden. Maybe he reported to the writer and says, this is exactly what happened that night when we all fell asleep. And then we woke up and we saw our Lord suffering. That's what, that's what we heard, loud cries. We, we simply do not know. What we do know is that the accomplishment of the plan of our salvation was very intense, friends. And, and think about this. What is the Lord asking here? What is he asking? He offered up prayers and supplication as he's offering up himself He's offering or these prayers to the one, listen, who is able to save him from death. So he's praying to his father and he knows my father can deliver me from death. And, and is he praying to be delivered from physical death or is he praying to be delivered through? Because the text says he was heard. He was heard. His prayer was answered. So, but he died, didn't he? He died on the cross. So what, what was he praying ultimately? What happened here? Most likely, Jesus here is asking not just the removal of physical death, because he ultimately said in the garden, right, your will be done, not mine. But what Jesus is pleading here and what he's asking is to be sustained through the suffering of bearing our sin and to be brought through death into resurrection and ultimately into ascension. And that's exactly what happened. He overcame death because he resurrected and he ascended to the throne of his father. And look at verse eight now says that Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. He learned obedience even though he was the son. Jesus learned, not in the sense as we last Sunday, remember Pastor Mike, he, he mentioned here from chapter two, he didn't learn in the sense that he was you know, previously imperfect or he was previously disobedient because he was without sin, but in the way that he experienced what obedience means through what he has suffered. He learned by actually going through it. 
Jesus was always obedient to the Father. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Can we say that? No, we can't, but Jesus did. But the proof of his obedience here is revealed in situations where obedience was, obedience rather was not pleasant. He learned what it's like to go and do the hard task. I mean, if I was gonna tell you, um, Oleg, you know, I can prove to you that my children are obedient. And I would pull up one of the two sitting here in the front and I would say, hey, Adele, you know, eat some chocolate. Eat it all. And then you would say, no, that's not proving obedience. Anybody can do that. But if I would say, Adele, go clean your room and help mom, you know, prep the dinner. And that would prove obedient. Why? Because it's much harder to do. This is actually, you have to deny yourself and you have to, okay, father. And you have to go and do it because it's, this is the heart. This is actually learning what obedience looks like. And, and so this is what Jesus underwent. Christ's weakness was not sinfulness. It was not inheriting a falling nature. Christ's weakness was found in the way that God prepared him to be our sympathetic priest. So that, as Isaiah says, as he went through his earthly ministry, he was known as a man of sorrows and who was acquainted with grief. That was Christ. Learning through and submitting completely to the Father so that he would know how to relate. So what do we learn about our our priest? First of all, the author calls us to be confident in God's mercy because of Christ's sympathetic mediation. Jesus is able to feel for us because he is like us. He is fully human who experienced the greatest suffering known to men. You know, so often you feel, even as, as we're dealing with one another, maybe in our live groups, and just talking about the hard week that we had, you know, something, you know, difficult that we're going through and, and so often, you know, you hear people almost expressing that they need someone more human than the Lord Jesus. Like, you know, wish that, you know, there would be someone here, like in flesh maybe, someone that I can really relate to. And, and some, in these times, we fail to understand that, that Jesus, that Christ was as human as we are yet without sin and he continues to be human. Even though he suffered and because he suffered, he's able to sympathize. He understands, friends. And guess what? He can deal gently. He deals gently with you. Therefore, draw near. Go to Christ. Cry out to him. As you come to him in prayer, plead for mercy and grace to endure your own suffering because Jesus has been there, to continue to press on in trials even when you feel like, you know, no one can relate to you. Jesus can, friends. But that's not all. The author of Hebrews not only points to the similarities between the OT uh, high priest and Christ, but also he points to a contrast. And I want you to see second point in verses five and six, that we ought to be confident in God's mercy because we have an everlasting mediator. Here we are given two quotes in verse five and six, two quotes from the Psalms. 
the first found in Psalm chapter two, verse seven. Now, Psalm chapter two, or uh, Psalm two, is uh, is what we call a messianic psalm, right? It's uh, it was already quoted in chapter one, so. Um, most of the illusions there in Psalm, they point to a greater reality that will be fulfilled in Christ. When we read this Psalm, especially chapter or verse seven, we are not to think of this Psalm as primarily, you know, referring to David the king, right? And, and that Christ is gonna, or God has set him up. You are my son. Today I have set up your kingdom. Now you are the king right? But this Psalm, specifically this verse, it points to a greater reality. We are to think of this verse primarily about God the Father appointing Jesus Christ to be our representative. Look what he says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What is the significance of this? Well, the author wants to point to us that Jesus was appointed by his father, just like every other Old Testament prophet was. He was appointed. He didn't come in and assume this role. No, he was appointed by God. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And so we're faced with this question. What does it mean today? Like, was there a time when Jesus was not a son and today he became a son? One commentator, Donald Guthrie, he writes, it could refer to the incarnation or the resurrection. In fact, Paul uses that, this same exact verse, to refer to resurrection in Acts chapter 13. On the other hand, it is not clear, he continues to write, that in Hebrews, any importance is attached to the time element. The writer is clearly more concerned to demonstrate the significance of the begetting in terms of the son's status rather than to tie it down to a specific occasion. So what, he, what this means here is that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is in a unique relationship with the father. There was never a time when Jesus was not a son. When we think of the Trinity, we think of three persons, God the father, God the son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as a son, he did not glorify himself as to assume this role of a high priest. No, God designated him as such. And notice, not just like a regular Old Testament priest because he attaches another quote from Psalm 110 where it says, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse four is another messianic psalm. And here for the first time, we're introduced to one of the most complex and difficult concepts in the book of Hebrews and that is this person and work of Melchizedek. I, I can't even pronounce it. I don't, know, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Maybe there's another pronunciation. I, I, I've listened to a few and every preacher has his own rendering, uh, which is fine. We'll leave it at that. But uh, Melchizedek is a very interesting figure. We're not going to go into depths and, and study him. He's only mentioned one time in Genesis chapter 14. And one other time here in Psalm 110, verse 4, as a reflection of Genesis 14, and then eight times, eight times in the book of Hebrews, okay? That's it. That's all we know of him. But why is he so significant? Why is he so significant? Well, what tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Tribe of Judah, how could he possibly be an eternal, everlasting high priest? Who is this letter written to? Hebrews. 
It's right there on top to the Hebrews, right? And uh, so since it was written to the Hebrews, man, they know, they know that you can't be from Judah and be a high priest. You had to be from a tribe of Levi. So how could this Jesus, who we're supposed to come and worship and say that he is now the mediator, how can he be a high priest? No doubt some of them have this same question. The writer, he's anticipating this question and go with me to Hebrews chapter seven and he answers it in verse 11. And he says this, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron, according to Levites. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one, here it is, Jesus belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. More than that, friends, the Old Testament records few instances when those who were not from the tribe of Levi attempted to assume the office of the priest and something very terrible happened to them. Remember Saul? Saul, he didn't wait for Samuel to offer up sacrifices and he did it himself and his kingdom was removed from him. He lost his kingdom. Remember King Uzziah, who was of Judah, same tribe of, that Jesus was, who presumed to take incense and offer it before the Lord. What happened to him? He was immediately struck with Leprosy. How could Jesus be a legitimate priest? Well, you keep reading and verse 15 says, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law, physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Listen, Jesus is in a different line of priests. He is in a line of another priest who is called Melchizedek. And what is significant about this line? Well, Levitical priests, there were many. There were many. Why? Because they kept dying. Look at verse 23 of the same chapter, Hebrews 7. The former priest, referring to the Old Testament priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers. Why? because they were prevented by death from continuing. They only served for a limited amount of time and then they died and then another person assumed that place and he died and then another died and they kept dying. That's why there was a requirement for more and more and more great number here. But Jesus, verse 24, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently, permanently, And this is very important. There's one Melchizedek. And since Jesus is according to his order, Jesus' priesthood continues forever because he continues forever. Jesus doesn't die. He remains forever. You have a high priest who endures. He's not succumbed to death. So here's the, here is the punchline that he's leading to, since we have an eternal and everlasting priest, Jesus Christ. Friend, your salvation is eternal. Your salvation is eternal. Look at verse 25. Therefore, 
since, since this is true of him, that he doesn't die, but he continues on forever, his priesthood remains perpetually, permanently. Therefore, verse 25, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He forever saves you, friend, because he continues forever, because he intercedes forever. Christian, your priest never dies. You are never in jeopardy of coming to the throne of grace and finding just buried sign. Oops, done. No, you're never in jeopardy of coming to the throne of grace and seeing out of order or lunch break. He remains forever and intercedes forever. And if you have surrendered to him by faith, then he continues to make intercessions for you before the Father. Friend, if Jesus is your high priest, your salvation is never in jeopardy. That's why Paul in Romans chapter eight, he could say, who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he doesn't go back and he says, because look at me. How can God ever deserve, desert me? No, he, our Lord. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's because of Christ that he doesn't desert us. Not because of us. That's why he says nothing can separate you from his love. He continues forever. You and I have access to God forever. You have the love of God based on the work of Christ forever. So come and keep coming to the throne of grace because you have an everlasting mediator. That's why. He's not like the one Old Testament high priest who passed away. This one remains forever and therefore you are always secure. You are always welcome to come. Be confident in God's mercy because you have a sympathetic mediator and an everlasting mediator. Friends, we, we all feel miserable. We all fail miserably. We are all broken. We were just singing this psalm, right? This song here. Come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. Come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. I mean, this is the message of Christmas. Come. Jesus is your everlasting high priest. But he ends here with one final note. If you go back to Hebrews chapter five, I just want to quickly mention in verses seven through nine, he explains further and gives us yet another reason why we are to be confident in receiving grace and mercy. And here it is, because of Jesus's perfect deeds because you have a perfect mediator. He says he offered up prayers and supplication. He was interceding for us. He was offering up himself as a sacrifice for us. Were his prayers answered? Friends, was his sacrifice accepted? If it wasn't accepted, we wouldn't be here. Yes, his sacrifice was accepted. Did the father hear his prayer? Yes, he heard his prayer because it's right in the text. It's right there. 
and he was heard, <laughs> and he was heard. Why? Keep reading verse seven. Why did the father hear him? Because of his piety. Some of your other translation may say because of his reverence or because of his devotion or because of his reverent submission. His reverence for the father determined that in his humanity, he would do nothing but please the father. His prayer was answered for even though his body died, he was saved out of death. And so the father did what was according to his will as Jesus prayed in the garden. He overcame grave by resurrection. But think how relevant this is for our prayer life, friends. When you and I go before the father in prayer, we are heard because of the merits of Jesus Christ. Only, only. He hears us because of his grace. That's it. In other words, we are not heard because we deserve to be heard. We are heard because God is gracious. That's why. But that is not so with Jesus. That's not so with the son. Listen, the son's prayers are answered and his sacrifice is accepted because he is perfect. Because of his reverent submission, it says, because of his piety, because of his submission to the father. So get this, unlike us, the son deserves to be heard. This perfect son, he deserves to be heard. And the, in fact, if you really push this farther, for the father not to answer the pleas and not to accept the sacrifice of Christ would be unjust because the son has earned the right to be heard through his perfect obedience and submission. He was heard not because God is gracious here. He was heard because of his piety. He deserved it because of his perfect deeds. His work on earth qualified him then to be the perfect mediator. And that's what the author is getting on in verse nine and having been made perfect, right? And having been made, having qualified as this mediator, he is now, it says, verse uh, nine, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Oh, this is great. He is the source. He is the spring of eternal life. No one else can come to God and claim what Jesus claimed and offer and be accepted apart from Christ's perfect work. That's why when we come, friends, we are accepted in the beloved, in his perfect work. Christ's priestly work, work earned our salvation. I mean, that's encouraging to us. It should be. We always say, you know, you're not saved by works. You're not saved by works. But in one sense, right, salvation is by works. It's just not your own. It's by someone else. It's Christ's work. And therefore, for us, salvation is only by grace because of the work of another. And think about this. Salvation is sure for us. Because the father will never deny his son. If we come pleading Christ's righteousness based on his deeds, the father will not deny us because he will never deny his son. 
Therefore, friend, be confident when you draw near to God. He is merciful. Don't trust your deeds. Don't trust instead Christ's perfect deeds. As you realize today, for I don't know what time that you continue to fail, I mean, you look to Jesus. Our only solution is to trust Christ by faith. And think about this. We're not even required to have perfect faith. Who here has perfect faith? Jesus was walking around with his disciples and so often he condemned that you have little faith. You have little faith. We are to constantly call, we are called to grow in our faith, mature in our faith. So I would deposit to you that it's not even about the measure or the perfect, perfect faith, but it is the perfect object of our faith that matters. Right? It's Jesus Christ who is perfect. So as we close here, this, this Christmas celebration, Martin Luther, he wrote a, a poem I want to read real quick at the end. He wrote it six years after he placed the 95 Theses on, on the ch- uh, door of that church. And here is just reflecting on, on the joy and the gift of Christ. Just want you to contemplate as we pray after. He says this, Dear Christians, let us now rejoice that of good cheer and with one voice and dance in joyous measure. We sing in love and pleasure of what to us our God has shown, and that the sweet wonder he has done, full dearly hath he wrought it. Forlorn and lost in death I lay, a captive to the devil. My sin lay heavy night and day, for I was born in evil. I fell full deeper for my strife. There was no good in all my life, for sin had all possessed me. My good works, they were worthless quiet. A mock was all my merit. My will did hate God's judging light to all good dead and buried. Even to despair my anguish bore that not by death lay me before. To hell I fast was sinking. To his dear son he said, go down, tis time to take compassion. Go down, my heart's most precious crown, be the poor man's salvation. Lift him from out sin's scorn and scath and strangle for him cruel death, that he with thee live forever. The son he heard obediently, and by maiden mother, pure tender, down he came to me, for he would be my brother. Secret he bore his strength enorm, he went about in my poor form, for he would catch the devil. He said to me, hold thou by me, thy matters I will settle. I give myself all up for thee, and I will fight thy battle, for I am thy, and thou art mine, and my place also shall be thine, the enemy shall not part us. I think this is a great reflection of, of the Christmas message as we come and as we understand that we need a priest, and not just the Old Testament priest, we needed this priest, one who can perfectly sympathize with us, one who is everlasting, therefore our assurance and our salvation is secure, and one who is perfect. Friends, we don't have to be afraid that when we get to heaven, if we believe in Jesus Christ, that somehow, somewhere, 
the accounting will be screwed up and we will not make it there because Jesus's deeds were not perfect. No, it's all secure, it's all there. If you trust Christ and if you continue to trust him, we're good because Jesus is good. And that is the message. And help us as now priests, we are called priests to go and proclaim the same message to others this this Christmas. We are now those who received the ministry of reconciliation so that we would be those who stand and represent God to man, being in his kingdom. So I encourage you to do that this season, this week, as you gather with your families, as you gather with friends. Bring this message of hope, of joy. Father, we thank you, and I pray that we would, this morning and this afternoon and this week especially, would be confidently drawing near to you in prayer and just just overflowing with gratitude. You are so good. You are so great because you have given up your son, the most precious one for us. Help us, Lord, not to take it lightly, but let this motivate us to, to godliness, to live for you like you desire, to be holy. Father, not because it's a requirement for us to get in, but because we are already in. Lord, we're in because of Christ. Help us to demonstrate our love. And when we don't, when we remain unfaithful, at times when the pressures of this world and the temptation to sin is just so great, help us to repent and confess and flee to Christ because we find great mercy and grace in time of need. We ask these things in his name. Amen.